0: Good morning. Today we're reading Zechariah chapter um, chapter 7 verse 1 to chapter 8 verse 7 and that's in the Church Bibles on page 671. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sharazer and Regimelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests... When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months of the past seventy years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just fa- feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous, and the Negev and western foothills were settled? And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with cane in hand because of his age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvellous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvellous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will save my people from the countries of the East and the West. Good
1: morning everyone, it's great to be amongst you again once more, and particularly uh, today uh, looking at Zechariah. I don't think in uh, what's been uh, many years of ministry and preaching now, I've ever actually preached on Zechariah. Um, dipped into it a few times. My earliest memory, in fact, of, of Zechariah is rather interesting um, because it began when I first um, began training for the ministry, which is a long time ago now. Back then, um, there was a Bible knowledge test when you first came in sort of to see how much he knew. I knew that was going to be embarrassing. Um, it was a sort of very humbling experience. But one of the questions in this test was the question, um, who was the son of Berechiah? <laughs> it's a good question for a quiz night, if you remember <coughs> it. Berechiah. Who in the world was Berakiah? I thought I knew most of the main characters of the Bible but I didn't have a clue who he was. Of course, if I'd been, let's say, uh, a bit more of a lateral thinker I tend to be more analytical rather than lateral I might have got a hint from that last part of his name, Kiah. You see, because in the end I soon found out that the answer was Zechariah. The opening verse of the book Actually, if you have a look, it states the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah. So it's a fairly unauspicious introduction to the book of Zechariah, but of course it's one that I therefore have never forgotten um, on the way. Over the years though, I've had occasion to uh, dip into the book because there are some significant passages about the life of Jesus and his introduction to the world particularly um, that are referred to in the Gospels. And you'll meet those in the next couple of weeks because they occur in the latter half of Zechariah in chapters 9 to 14 um, here. But today, in chapters 7 and 8, we really come to the conclusion of the first half. Um, to what one person I was listening to this week called the wild ride of Zechariah's weird dreams and visions, which uh, I gather you've been experiencing somewhat if you belong to one of the community groups that have been studying Zechariah over the past few weeks. Chapters 7 and 8, you see, review the problems that had led to the exile of God's people from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, almost 70 years um, earlier, and they set out an overview of God's plan for restoration. And so I've simply called it today um, in the outline which uh, appears in your leaflet um, from remnant... ...to restoration. And you might like to, if you want to take some notes, keep that open... ...or keep it open just so you can see where we're going... ...and it would be a good idea if you still had your Bibles open... ...at um, chapters uh, 7 and 8 as well. Now, chapter 7 sets the scene. It's two years after the book uh, began... ...and the eight visions that you've been looking at in chapters 1 to 6. So you see the book is quite specific... In the beginning, um, it says, "In the very beginning, as the year of the reign of Darius, the eighth year of the reign of Darius, um, which was in 520 BC." Um, verse one of chapter seven tells us that it's now um, the fourth year, and this is 518. 518. So a couple of years on. So what's happened is we've got the first six chapters there, and there's all these visions that Zechariah had. They've all happened. Uh, Now we're two years down the track and all of a sudden we get the next bit. And presumably Zechariah had been preaching in between, but uh, when he writes down uh, the words and things like that, he comes to this significant part. And what it does is sort of summarise in some ways the main themes that have been reviewed. So now we're we're near the end of this 70-year period that God had declared through the prophet Jeremiah the people would remain in exile. Uh, most of them finally went into exile at 586 BC. You can do the math of 70 years down to 516, and we're at 518. Some Jews, however, had already returned. There'd been a trickle back, Haggai and Zechariah uh, included in that, but the bulk was yet to come. The temple foundation had been built uh, during this time, a little while before, but there'd been a lot of opposition and it had stalled and stopped. It's this coming near to the end of this prophesied period of exile that prompts the question that opens chapter 7, of course, that we had dealt with so well by Porker this morning. In verses 2 and 3, we read, The people of Bethel had sent Shereza and Regimelech uh, together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house." Of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I've done so for many years? Now, Bethel was about 20 kilometres north of Jerusalem, and obviously people had come back and settled there as well. And a delegation was sent to the priests and prophets in Jerusalem um, to ask whether what had been instituted as a result of the previous destruction of Jerusalem uh, should now cease with the prospect, with the 70-year reign or 70-year end of better times to come. Now the question is not immediately answered at all. It's only answered much later on as we'll see in chapter 8. Instead what the Lord does to begin with through Zechariah is to review what I've called a reminder of the problem. The problem that led to exile in the first place. The practice of fasting was most commonly associated in the Old Testament with disaster of some kind. Usually disaster almost always caused by the sin of the people. And it was meant to reflect an attitude of repentance for what had happened and a reminder for them to reflect on all the time. These fasts in the fifth month, but also there were others you'll see if you just flick over to 8.19, there are ones in the seventh month, the fourth month, and tenth month. Uh, a number of them were instituted, and as far as we can see, they correspond. These fasts correspond to different events that happened when Jerusalem was flattened by the Babylonians. You could go back and read in 2 Kings 25. There's an account of what happened in uh, in the fall of Jerusalem. And you'll see that there are separate sections that will say in the 10th month and the 5th month and the 7th month and the 4th these things happen. And we think that these fasts were basically put in place um, to commemorate in a bad way, in somewhat a sad way, as Stephen was saying earlier, these events and the people's failure to obey God. Initially, of course, they may uh, have been... Um, Truly heartfelt cries to God in the face of their sin and rebellion. But they soon became something else. Something that presented, represented really only ritual practice without truly repentant hearts. So verse 4 says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, ask the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seven months, for the past 70 years was it really for me that you fasted and when you were eating and drinking were you just feasting were you not just feasting for yourselves are these not the words of the lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the negev and the western foothills were settled See, Zechariah is told to us, the people and the priests, about their ultimate motive for this continued period of fasting over these 70 years and even their motives in everyday life as they eat and drink. Because the problem, you see, was not whether they fasted or not. The real problem was the state of their heart. If they fasted, it seems they only did so for themselves. Now think about that for a moment. What did that mean? How do you fast for yourself? I'd never fast for myself. It'd be just the opposite. You see, fasting must bring some kind of perceived benefit to be fasting for yourself. And it seems like what God is saying is that they fasted only for the appearance of contrition and repentance over sin. Why did they do that? Well, presumably to avoid the consequences of their sin and maybe secure or merit God's favour again. In other words, these fasts were not done in order to repair and build their relationship with God again when it had been severed but as one writer says, to merely free themselves from the circumstances of God's discipline. As Zechariah says, this is only to repeat the behaviour the prophets had condemned before the exile. It was exactly the same problem they had which brought on the exile in the first place. That's the point of verse 7. They had endured the exile but nothing inside had really changed. Now, friends, I can tell you that if you think this this problem of ritual practice without repentant hearts was Israel's problem not our own, you'd be sadly mistaken. The temptation to involve ourselves in Christian practice that comes from selfish motives is always before us. Just take, for instance, the practice of Holy Communion. Why do we do it? Well, because Jesus told us so. Why? He said, in remembrance of him. That is, to continually place before us the incredible sacrifice of the Son of God for our sin. Our continued sin. And the wonderful forgiveness of sins assured for us there. Yet how easy over time, and how I've seen it so many times, that such a wonderful testament to the love and glory of God can descend simply into a rite we perform to appear repentant or religious and even practice somehow to justify ourselves before God and merit his favour. How easy, as I've heard some people say, to do your business with God and have little effect on the way we live day by day. Or what about something simple like we've seen in the advertisements this morning, serving on rosters? Why do we do it? Well, hopefully, as was said, to serve God by serving God's people with the gifts and abilities that uh, has been given to us. But over time, and almost the longer you're a Christian, it seems to me. How easily it becomes more than just or only just a religious duty done to appear like we're involved or even to gain the praise of others. And then we might think about church leaders and preachers. As someone who's had a, a long ministry of preaching and teaching the word, how easy it is, I can tell you, to crave the popularity of the people you lead, to look for their praise rather than the responsibility of teaching the truth of God's word. There are plenty of churches today, thankfully not this one, where preachers teach things that are popular to human ears and seek the adulation of human praise have the responsibility to teach the truth of God's word. Friends, none of us are free from the temptation to separate our religious and Christian practice from true devotion to God and his word. To do things out of religious duty, which serves no one but ourselves by giving the appearance of devotion to God, And even thinking that somehow we might merit God's favour as a result. Now the root cause of this problem is the subject of the second half of chapter 7. Something that the people have been warned about many times. The problem of what I'd call in your outline, hearing the word without listening to the word. So in verse 8, and the word of the Lord again came to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said, Administer, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow, or the fatherless, the foreigner, or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint, would not listen to the law or to the words of the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. Zechariah, you see, lays out God's primary concerns here for the behaviour of his people. What he wanted to see more than fasting itself, nothing wrong with that, but what he wanted to see was the administration of true justice, mercy and compassion, not oppressing the vulnerable and not plotting evil against anyone. Now you can read any of the prophets of the Old Testament you'll see these four are so common through their message describing the essentials of what it meant to live for God in those times in ancient Israel. However, the emphasis here is not on the meaning of those four so much as the response of the people to this word. They had heard many times that word, that call of the prophets but they become hard of heart. And did not listen, verse eleven says they refused to pay attention. The result, of course, was utterly catastrophic, and as described in verses twelve and thirteen or verse thirteen when I called, they did not listen. so when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate that no one travelled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land, desolate. Just as they had closed their ears to God's word, so he did not listen to them when their cries under the threat of a rampaging Babylonian army came about. Jerusalem was decimated, the people scattered to the lands of strangers and a land once described earlier in the beginning of the Old Testament, a land flowing with milk and honey, was left desolate. Friends, certainly with the coming of Jesus and the possession of the Spirit of God in each one, we have more resources if you like, spiritual resources to live a repentant obedient life of faith. But we're not immune from the problem of hardness of heart we see here. The Apostle Paul knew that so well when he was referring to the sin and rebellion of another problem in the Old Testament, the wilderness generation, he says this in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 6 and 11 and 12. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We too need to cultivate a sensitivity to the word of God, both in our private reading and weekly connection here and in our community groups. And we need to develop an accountability with one another, guarding each other with love and grace from this spell, this spell of religious practice that ignores the demands of God's word. Now what's interesting here, um, I think, is that chapter 7 just leaves us hanging. Get to the end, see? Desolate, that's what happened. Doesn't say anything about the response of the people. What will that response be? Will they take this news, this question, this reminder to heart? This reminder to truly repent and obey the word of God. For now, you see, Zechariah leaves that question open. Instead, in chapter 8, he moves from a reminder of the problem uh, here to God's great promise of restoration. Chapter 8's entirely different to chapter 7. This restoration is described in a series of 10 statements or oracles of God, nearly all <coughs> beginning with This is what the Lord Almighty says. Bang, 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 bang. Verse 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 9, 14, 19, 20 and 21. I hope you wrote all those down really quickly then. (laughs) I've broken up the content of this great promise of restoration in three major parts. The first concerns God's heart and character. So you see, God's promise of restoration begins and arises out of God's jealousy for his people. Verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord, oh, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very zealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. Now, after the end of chapter 7, that's sort of a big shock, isn't it? It's not what you expect. You might have expected some announcement of judgment again, some threat of judgment. But instead, out of the blue, so to speak, we get this declaration of God's jealousy for his people. It's as if God cannot bear to be separated from his people any longer. Though the judgment of the exile was severe because of the hardness of heart and obstinacy of his people who forgot to listen to his word, he cannot give them up. It's as if God's heart bursts for his people and That's the reason he will ultimately restore their fortunes. This bursting emotion for his people is here represented in a wonderful scene. A wonderful picture of the return of his presence. So in verse 3, this is what the Lord says, I'll return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvellous to the remnant of this people at the time, but will it seem marvellous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'll save people, my people, from the countries of the East and West. I'll bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. This last statement, verse 8 and verse 2, tie this whole section together. The former expressing, you see, the emotion is jealousy and the latter, the end of that desire to be among his people. We get here some wonderful expressions of the intimacy of God and his people. Verse 3, God will return and dwell in Jerusalem again. Once more it will be called faithful or truthful city, holy mountain. In verses 4 and 5, we such good times are seen in the carefree images of men and women of ripe old age sitting in the streets and boys and girls playing together as if without a care in the world. You can imagine how the people might have felt at this stage. This would seem utterly like fantasy land to them. Fantasy land. You've got to be joking. How's that going to happen? And hence, you see, why God says in verse 6, that rhetorical question might seem marvellous to you, but will it be marvellous to me? Not at all. Nothing, you see, is beyond God. So in verses 7 and 8, God declares uh, once more that his great passion and jealous heart for people will mean bringing them back where he will be among them. They will be his people and he will be their faithful God. Now, brothers and sisters, After so many years since the first coming of Jesus, have you ever wondered whether Jesus will return? Whether God can deliver on what he's promised? It seems so far away sometimes, doesn't it, when you look at our world in chaos and even when you look inside your own heart at what goes on there. Can God deliver? Well, of course he can. But that's not the main question. The question is not can he deliver? The question is will he? Will he deliver? And the answer we find here in these verses is God will because he must. That's what he's like his heart bursts for his people. For relationship with you and with me. As one writer puts it so well and beautifully, I think, the revelation of God's heart is the greatest source of hope For every generation. Let me say that again. The revelation of God's heart is the greatest source of hope for every generation. I'm so glad. that we have a God who's driven by a passion and a jealousy for his people, aren't you? Well, from this expression of God's heart that runs for all generations, we move to sort of the second movement of this restoration to God's salvation of his people. The second movement um, goes right through to verse 17. It's fairly long and I won't... Read it all. Um, let me just read a couple of uh, key verses. Verses 9, 11 and 13 to 15. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now hear the word, these words. Let your hands be strong so that the temple may be built. This is also what the prophets said who are present where the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty. In verse 11. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past declares the Lord. And verse 13. Just as you, Judah and Israel, had been a curse among the nations, so I'll save you. You'll be a blessing. Do not be afraid. Let your hands be strong. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and show you no pity when your ancestors angered me, said the Lord Almighty, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. Notice the contrast that's going on in these verses between the past and the present. Made clear with, but now, so now, so I will. God's salvation in the past is contrasted with his judgment. His salvation in the present, I mean, contrasted with his judgment in the past. Then Jerusalem was utterly laid bare But now God's salvation would consist in the blessing of Jerusalem. First, in verse 9, the people are encouraged to get on and complete the building of the temple. The conditions which had uh, been difficult previously when they built the foundation before Zechariah's time where there was a great threat to their safety would no longer apply. Now their seed would grow and produce crops and their vines fruit rather than disaster God had now determined to do good to Jerusalem. God would once again save them from any enemy threat, so they should not be afraid. The salvation then announced here was present. It represented God's promises in the past to restore his people to the promised land again that had been given them under the leadership of Joshua. And the encouragement in verses 8 and 13, it seems to me, let your hands be strong. Surely echo God's own words to Joshua way back then to be strong and courageous when he was called to lead the people into the land. Yet we know now, don't we, friends, living this side of the coming of Jesus, that this present blessing was only partially fulfilled because it looked forward to something so much greater. The temple was built. It was rebuilt. It took a long time, but it was rebuilt. The people did return. The land began once again to produce its abundance. But the people would never, ever gain total control of the land again. And we know that disaster struck again in AD 70, when Jerusalem once more was laid bare. With the coming of Jesus, you see, the hope that surrounded this physical earthly city was transformed into the promise and blessing of something far greater, an eternal city, the heavenly Jerusalem. As Hebrews 12 Verses 22 to 24 declares to the true Israel, the followers of Christ. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The ultimate fulfilment of this physical blessing of Jerusalem will only be seen when Jesus returns and that heavenly Jerusalem descends and becomes part of the reality of life together with God, where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. But I want you to note here, verses 16 and 17. That such a blessing, still assumes a repentant attitude to God and devotion to once more obey him. Verse 16 says, These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. Render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate this, declares the Lord. You see, the question remains for both the people of Zechariah's time and for us, will we get on board with God's agenda for his people? Will we seek to live with a repentant attitude when we falter into sin and then faithfully commit ourselves once more to the words of Jesus to love God and love our neighbour? Again, it's left hanging. Well, the third and final part of God's restoration promise Goes back to God's very first promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where he states that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You see, God's ultimate end game, friends, in his program of restoration here in chapter 8 is his plan to make his people a blessing to the nations. Verse 18. The word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh, tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth and peace. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. The inhabitants of the one city will go to the other and say, Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says, in those days ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of a Jew, of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you. Because we have heard that God is with you. Finally, an answer to the question posed way back in the beginning of chapter 7. All those fasts instituted to commemorate the fall of Jerusalem, the devastation of the exile, no longer be relevant. In the present, fasting will now give way to feasting. There will be great joy and happy celebrations amongst God's people. Once again, God reminds them that this is predicated on a devotion to love, truth and peace. But the emphasis now is on the blessing that Jerusalem and his people and its people are to become. It's through God's people in New Testament terms, the new Jerusalem, that the church, that through the church all the nations will be drawn in. Nations will come to where they know the presence of God can be found. People of different nations and languages will grab hold of a Jew's robe because they've heard that God is with them. Friends, one of the great privileges I had teaching at the Bible College of South Australia for many years was to hear the testimonies of students. And how they came to know the Lord is one of the most encouraging things I, um, I was privileged to hear. And I can tell you that on a regular basis, students would say how they had been influenced by the attractiveness of the life of a Christian person they knew, or sometimes a Christian church or community. That they had been in. Now they'd use different words they'd say, you know, I discovered there was something different about him or her or she had something I didn't or there was a joy and peace about that person Recently there's been a lot of talk about uh, the best way to share the gospel with Muslim people I was talking with my daughter Stephanie yesterday who you know has ministered amongst Muslims in Central Asia and she confirmed too what I suspected was true that the best way to reach out to Muslims was simply living life together. Inviting people into your life. Letting them know who you are. What makes you tick? You see, if we simply live day by day as people devoted to God and His Word, as people who, in Zechariah's terms, love truth and peace, both as individuals and as a community of believers. It's an incredibly attractive thing. This is what T&E ought to be. A place where when people come into our midst they sense by what they hear and how they are treated that God is with us. And then when they meet us at work, at school or at uni or whatever during the week, over time, they notice something different. Something attractive, something they do not have. For that is God's ultimate end game. To make his people a vehicle for the drawing in of the nation's to serve and worship him. And of course, this endgame has been going on ever since Pentecost, ever since the Spirit of God invaded our lives. This is what we see all around the world. Why all the nations around the world have come to know the Lord Christ through his people. Surely that's what we want to see here too. In the northeast, is it not? Well, let me conclude. I said to you earlier that uh, Zechariah chapter seven and eight, in some ways, in the end, leave open the response of the people to this reminder of the problem and God's promised restoration. Leave it open-ended. How will the people respond? Will they change? Zechariah's community have waited seventy years for there to be some chance of. Restoration. Will their ritual practices become a reflection of true repentance again? A devotion to listen and obey God's word. Will they arise out of that? Will they hear? Will they not only hear, but will they listen? Today, we live between the first and second comings of Jesus, between what is often called the now and the not yet. The call of God is no different for us today as we look to his return. Every day is a day closer to the return of Jesus and his eternal restoration of glory. The last thing, friends, you want to happen when Jesus returns is for him to address you in words similar to the words of Zechariah chapter 7, verse 4. Was your Christian practice for me or for you? Rather, what we want to see here at T&E is that we might be a community of integrity and obedience, a community aware of continued sin, but also the wonder of God's forgiveness in the cross of Christ, and a determination, however imperfectly, to serve him and to reach out to others in love, truth and peace. Rather than the words of Zechariah 7.4 spoken to us, we want to see the words of Zechariah 8.23 fulfilled in us. Let's pray, brothers and sisters, that it may be so. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these chapters of Zechariah today and we particularly thank you for the wonder it is of your jealousy and passion for your people. We thank you that Our great hope of salvation rests not in us, but in you. We pray, Father, that you would guard us from doing things because they appear good or because they win the praise of others or because we think we might merit them. Something with you. We pray, Father, that all we do may arise out of our devotion to you and to the instruction of your word. And we pray above all, Lord, as we grow and develop here at t that those words of Zechariah uh, might come true. Uh, that people in this area might come to know us in some way through every day or by coming here. And they too uh, may come to you because they recognise that you are here. Uh, We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.